Alrighty, welcome back. So, I'm still sick. And we are now into chapter 2 of Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. As we learned in the previous chapter, these chapters in the book Daniel and Revelation go by the chapters in the Bible. So right now, it looks as if we are reading the book of Daniel. And we will be reading verse by verse and getting a little bit of background information of every verse in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel in the Bible. As Bible verses come up, I will be reading them off of my iPad Bible app. Um, it is a King James Bible. And if there are any notes within the chapter, I will read them at the end of the chapter. So, chapter 2 is titled um i'm scrolling through trying to find it there we go chapter two is called the king dreams of world empires verse one says and in the second year of his reign of nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him the course of empires with unerring accuracy, the pen of prophecies has traced the course of history down to our day. Daniel was carried into captivity in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. For three years, he was placed under instructors, during which time he would not, of course, be reckoned among the wise men of the kingdom, nor to partake, nor take part in public affairs. Yet in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, the transactions recorded in this chapter took place. <clears throat> How then could Daniel be brought in to interpret the king's dreams in his second year? The explanation lies in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar reigned for two years conjointly with his father, Nabopolassar. From this point... The Jews reckoned, while the Chaldeans reckoned from the time he began to reign alone on the death of his father. Hence, the year here mentioned was the second year of his reign according to the Chaldean reckoning, but the fourth year according to the Jewish. And there's a little note at the end of the chapter for me to read about this statement. It thus appears that the next year of Daniel had completed his preparation to participate in the affairs of the Chaldean Empire. The providence of God brought him into sudden and remarkable prominence throughout the kingdom. Verse 2 says, Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. The king's wise men fail him. The magicians practiced magic, using the term in its bad sense. That is, they employed all the superstitious rites and ceremonies of fortune tellers and casters of nativities and the like. 
Astrologers were men who pretended to foretell events by the study of the stars. The science or the superstition of astrology was extensively cultivated by the eastern nations of antiquity. Sorcerers were such as pretended to hold communications with the dead. In this sense, we believe the word sorcerer is always used in the scripture to talk about talking to the dead. The Chaldeans here mentioned were a sect of philosophers, similar to the magicians and astrologers, who made natural science and divinations their study. All these sects, all of these mysterious and foretelling of events, the all these sects or professions abounded in Babylon. The result desired by each was the same the explaining of mysteries and foretelling of events, the principal difference between them being the means by which they sought to accomplish their object. The king's difficulty lay equally within the providence of each to explain. Hence, he summoned them all. When the king, it was an, with the king, it was an important matter. He was greatly troubled and therefore concentrated upon the solution of his perplexity, the wisdom of his realm. Verse 3 and 4. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever, tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. In whatever else the ancient magicians and astrologers must have may have been efficient, they seem to have been thoroughly schooled in the art of drawing out sufficient information to form a basis for some shrewd calculation, or of framing their answers in such an ambiguous manner that they would be applicable whichever way the events turned. In the present case, true to their cunning instincts, they called upon the king to make known to them his dream. If they could get full information respecting this, they could easily agree on some interpretation which would not endanger their reputation. They addressed themselves to the king in Syriac, a dialect of the Chaldean language which was used by the educated and cultured classes. From this point to the end of Daniel 7, the, rec the record continues in Chaldaic, the language spoken by the king. Verse 5 through 13. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of certainty that you, will gain, that you would gain time, because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, 
There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things that any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause... The king was angry and very furious, and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. These verses contain the record of the desperate struggle between the wise men and the king. The former sought some avenue of escape, since they were caught in their own ground. The king was determined that they should make known his dream, which was no more than should be expected from their profession. Some have severely censored Nebuchadnezzar in this matter, as acting the part of a heartless, unreasonable tyrant. But what did these magicians profess to be able to do? To reveal hidden things? To foretell events? To make known mysteries entirely beyond human foresight and penetration. And to do this by the aid of supernatural agencies. There was therefore nothing unjust in Nebuchadnezzar's demand that they should make known his dream. When they declared that none but the gods, whose dwelling was not with flesh, could make known the king's matter, it was a tacit acknowledgment that they had no communication with the gods, and they knew nothing beyond what human wisdom and discernment could reveal. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious. He saw that he and all his people were being made the victim of deception, while he cannot justify the extreme measures to which he resorted, dooming them to death and their houses to destruction. We cannot but feel a hearty sympathy with him in the condemnation of a class of miserable impostors. The king would be no party to dishonesty or deception. Verses 14 through 18 Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time, and that he would show the king it the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Verse 18 that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning the secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel to the rescue. In this narrative, we see the providence of God working in several remarkable particulars. It was providential that the dream of the king should leave such a powerful impression upon his mind as to raise him to the greatest height of anxiety, and yet the thing itself be held from his recollection. This led to the complete exposure of the false system of the magicians and other pagan teachers. 
When put to the test to make known the dream, they were unable to do what they professed was entirely within their power. It was remarkable that Daniel and his companions, so lately pronounced by the king ten times better than all his magicians and astrologers, should not have been consulted in this matter. But there was a providence in this. Just as a dream was held from the king, so he was unaccountably restrained from appealing to Daniel for a solution of the mystery. He had called Daniel at first to make known the matter. The magicians would not have been brought to the test, but God would give the heathen system of the Chaldeans the first chance. He would let them try and ignominiously fail and then confess their utter incompetency, even under the penalty of death, that they might be the better prepared to acknowledge his intervention when he should finally manifest his power in behalf of his captive servants and for the honor of his name. It appears that the first intimidation Daniel had of this matter was the presence of the executioners came for his arrest. His own life being thus at stake, he was led to seek the Lord with all his heart until he should work for the deliverance of his servants. Daniel gained his request for the of the king for time to consider a matter, the matter a privilege which probably none of the magicians could have obtained. As the king had already accused them of preparing false and corrupt words, and of seeking to gain time for this very purpose, Daniel at once went to his three companions and asked them to unite with him in desiring mercy of the God of heaven concerning this secret. He could have prayed alone, and doubtless would have been heard, but then, as now in the union of God's people, there is prevailing power, the promise of it, of the accomplishment of that which is asked, is to the two or three who shall agree concerning it. We find this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 through 20. So going to our Bible, going to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 and 20. 18, 19, and 20. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven, for which two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Let's jump back to the book of Daniel, verses 19 through 23. Then the secret be revealed unto Daniel in a night then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in the in a night vision then Daniel blessed the god of heaven Daniel answered and said blessed be the name of god forever and ever for wisdom and might are his and he changes the times and the seasons he removes kings and sets up kings he gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. 
Whether or not the answer came while Daniel and his companions were yet offering up their petitions were not informed. It was in a night vision that God revealed himself in their behalf. The words night vision mean anything that is seen, whether through dreams or visions. Daniel immediately offered up praise to God for his gracious dealing with them. And while his prayer is not preserved, his response of thanksgiving is fully recorded. God is honored by our praise to him for the things he has done for us, as well as by our petitions to him for help. Let Daniel's course be our example in this respect. Let no mercy from the hand of God fail of its due return of thanksgiving and praise. In the days of Christ's ministry on earth, he did, did he not cleanse ten lepers, and only one returned to give him thanks. But where, asks Christ sorrowfully, are the nine? This is found in Luke chapter 17, verse 17. The Hebrew youth in prayer, both in emergencies and in normal times, Daniel sought his God in prayer, and the Lord never failed him. Daniel had the utmost confidence in what had been shown him. He did not first go to the king to see if he had been if what had been revealed to him was indeed the king's dream, but immediately praised God for having answered his prayer. Although the matter was revealed to Daniel and not he did not take honor to himself as though it were by his prayers alone that the answers had been obtained, but he immediately associated his companions with him and acknowledged it to be as much an answer to their prayers as it was to his own. It was, he said, what we desired of thee, and thou hast made it known to us. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon, Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Daniel's first plea was for the wise men of Babylon. Destroy them not, for the king's secret is revealed, he implored. True, it was though no, through no merit of theirs or their heathen system of divination that this revelation was made. They were worthy of such condemnation as before. But their own confession of utter impotence in the matter was humiliation enough for them. And Daniel was anxious that they should so far partake of the benefits shown him as to have their lives spared. They were saved because there was a man of God among them. Thus it ever is, for the sake of Paul and Silas, all the prisoners of them were loosed in Acts chapter 16, verse 26. For the sake of Paul, the lives of all that sailed with him were saved in Acts chapter 27, verse 24. How often the wicked are benefited from the presence of the righteous. Well would be if they would remember the obligation under which they thus are thus placed. What saves the world today? For whose sake is it still spared? For the sake of the few righteous persons who are left? Remove these, and how long would the wicked be suffered to ruin their guilty career? 
no longer than the antediluvians were suffered after Noah had entered the ark, or the sodomites after Lot had departed from their polluted and polluting presence. If only ten righteous persons could have been found in Sodom, the multitude of its wicked inhabitants would for their sakes have been spared. Yet the wicked would despise, ridicule, and oppress the very ones on whose account it is that they are still permitted the enjoyment of life and all its blessings. Verse 25 Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And thus said unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. It is ever a characteristic of ministers and couriers to ingratiate themselves with their sovereign. sovereign. So here Antioch represented that he had found a man who could make known the desired interpretation as if the great disinterestedness in behalf of the king he had been searching for someone to solve his difficulty and at last had found him. In order to see through this deception uh, the chief executioner, the king had to but remember, as he probably did, his interview with Daniel and Daniel's promise, if time could be granted to show the interpretation of the dream in verse 16. Verse 26 through verse 28 says, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen, and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets, and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the vision of thy head upon thy bed are these. Art unable to make known unto me what the dream was a king's salutation to Daniel, as he came into the royal presence. Notwithstanding his previous acquaintance with this Hebrew, a king seemed to question the ability of one so young and inexperienced to make known a matter in which aged and venerable magicians and soothsayers had utterly failed. Daniel declared plainly that the wise men, the astrologers, the soothsayers, and the magicians could not make known this secret. It was beyond their power. Therefore the king should not be angry with him, nor put confidence in their vain superstitions. The prophet proceeded to make known the true God who rules in heaven and is the only revealer of secrets. He it is, said Daniel, who makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Verses 29 and 30 As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that reveals secrets makes known to thee what shall come to pass. Verse 30. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me, 
for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou might know the thoughts of thy heart. Here is brought out another commemorable trait of Nebuchadnezzar's character. Unlike some rulers who fill up the present with folly and debauchery without regard to the future, the king thought forward upon the days to come with an anxious desire to know with what events they should be filled. It was partly for this reason that God gave him this dream, which we must regard as a token of divine favor to the king. Yet God would not work for the king independently of his own people. Though he gave the dream to the king, he sent the interpretation through one of his acknowledged servants. Daniel first disclaimed all credit for the interpretation, and then he sought to modify the king's natural feelings of pride in being thus noticed by the God of heaven. He informed him that although the dream had been given to him, it was not for his sake alone that the interpretation was sent, but also for their sakes through whom it should be given. Ah, God had some servants there, and it was for them that he was working. They were of more value in his sight than the mightiest kings and potentates of earth. How comprehensive was the work of God in this instance. By this one act of revealing the king's dream to Daniel, he made known to the king the things he desired. He saved his servants who trusted in him. He brought conspicuously before the Chaldean nation the knowledge of him who know the end from the beginning. He poured contempt on the false systems of the soothsayers and magicians, and he honored his own name and exalted his servants in their eyes. Daniel relates the dream. After making it clear to the king that the purpose of the God in heaven in giving him the dream was to reveal what shall be in the latter days, Daniel related the dream itself. These are verses 31 through 35. Verse 31 says, Thou, O king, saw and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast of his arms, of and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou saw it, thou saw till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar, a worshipper of the gods of the Chaldean religion, was an idolater. An image which an object which would 
An image was an object which would at once command his attention and respect. Moreover, earthly kingdoms, which, as we shall hereafter see, were represented by this image, were objects of esteem and value in his eyes. But how admirably adapted was this representation to convey a great and needful truth to the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. Besides delineating the progress of events through the whole course of time for the benefit of his people, God would show Nebuchadnezzar the utter emptiness and worthlessness of earthly pomp and glory. How could this be more impressively done than by an image whose head was of gold? Below this head was body, composed of inferior metals, descending in value until they reached their basest form in the feet and toes of iron mingled with clay, with miry clay. The whole was then dashed into pieces and made like the empty chaff. It was finally blown away where no place could be found for it, after which something durable and of heavenly worth occupied its place. So would God show to the children of men that earthly kingdoms are to pass away, and earthly greatness and glory, like a gaudy bubble, will break and vanish in the place so long usurped by these. The kingdom of God shall be set up and have no end." while all who have an interest in the kingdom shall rest under the shadow of its peaceful wings for ever and ever. But this is anticipating. Verse 26 and 27. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Verse 27. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven hath he given into your hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art the head of gold. Daniel interprets the dream. Now opens one of the most comprehensive of the histories of world empire. Eight short verses of the inspired record tell the whole story. Yet the story embraces the history of this world's pomp and power. In a few moments will suffice to commit it to memory, yet the period which it covers beginning more than 25 years ago, 25 centuries ago, reaches from that far distant point past the rise and fall of kingdoms, past the setting up and overthrow of empires, past cycles and ages, past our own day to the eternal state. It is so comprehensive that it embraces all this, yet it is so minute that it gives us great outlines of earthly kingdoms from that time to this. Human wisdom never devised so brief a record that embraced so much. Human language never set forth in so few words such a great volume of historical truth. The finger of God is here. Let us heed the lesson well. With what interest and astonishment must the king have listened as he was informed by the prophet that his kingdom was the golden head of the magnificent image? Daniel informed the king that the God of heavens 
had given him his kingdom and made him ruler over all. This would restrain him from the pride of thinking that he had attained his position by his own power and wisdom, and he would enlist the gratitude of his heart towards the true God. Thou art this head of gold. Fearlessly, Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold is a symbol of great Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon, which finally developed into the nation, represented by the golden head of the great historic image, was founded by Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, more than 2,000 years before Christ. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Babylon margin, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. These verses are from Genesis chapter 10. These are verses 8 through 10. It appears that Nimrod also founded the city of Nineveh, which afterward became the capital of Assyria. See marginal readings of Genesis chapter 10, verse 11. Well, let's go to Genesis and read it. Genesis chapter 10, verse 11 says, Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth and Calah. In Kayla. Fulfillment of the dream, the Babylonian Empire rose to power under the general, who also became King Nabopolassar. When he died in 604 BC, his son Nebuchadnezzar became king. As R. Campbell Thompson declares, events had already shown that Nebuchadnezzar was a vigorous and brilliant commander, and physically as well as mentally a strong man, fully worthy of succeeding his father. He was to become the greatest man of all time in the Near East, as a soldier, a statesman, and an architect. He had successors been had his successors been of such a stamp instead of callow boys or Dilatenti, without redeeming vigor, the Persians would have found Babylonia a harder problem. All the nations, says Jeremiah, shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his own land come. This is from a revised version of Jeremiah 27.7. This is written in the book, so I read it off of the book. Jeremiah was taken by Nebuchadnezzar in the first year of his reign, and the third year of Judah, Daniel verse one, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar reigned two years conjointly with his father, Nabopolassar. From this point, Jews computed his reign, but the Chaldeans from the date of his sole reign, for 604 BC, as stated above, respecting the successors of Nebuchadnezzar, the authority just quoted adds Nebuchadnezzar died about August through September 562 BC. He was succeeded by his son Amal Marduk, who lived from 562 to 560 BC, whom Jeremiah calls evil Mar Merodach. 
he was given little time to prove his worth. The two years of his brief reign are merely enough to show that political conditions were against were again hostile to the royal house. The later Babylon rulers, weak in power, could not equal the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus, king of Persia, besieged Babylon and took it by stratagem. The character of the Babylonian Empire is indicated by the head of gold. It was the golden kingdom of a golden age. Babylon, its metropolis, towered to a height never reached by any of its successors. Situated in the Garden of the East, laid out in a perfect square said to be sixty miles in circumference, fifteen miles on each side, surrounded by a wall estimated to have two hundred to three hundred feet high and eighty-seven feet thick, with a moat or ditch around this, or equal cubic or equal cubic capacity, with the walls itself. Divided into squares by its many streets, each 150 feet in width, crossing at right angles, every one of them straight and level. It's 225 square miles of enclosed surface laid out in, in, in luxuriant pleasure grounds and gardens, interspread with magnificent dwellings, this city, with its 60 miles of moat and 60 miles of outer wall, its 30 miles of river wall through its center, its gates of solid brass, its hanging gardens rising terrace above terrace, till they equally till they equaled in height, the walls themselves, its temple of Belus, three miles in circumference, its two royal palaces, one three and a half and the other eight miles in circumference, with its subterranean tunnel under the river Euphrates connecting these two palaces, its perfect arrangements for convenience, ornament and defense, and its unlimited resources, this city containing it itself many things which were themselves wonders of the world was itself another still mightier wonder there with the whole earth prostrate at her feet a queen in peerless grandeur drawing from the pen of inspiration itself this glowing title the glory of kingdoms the beauty of the chaldeans excellency stood this city fit capital of that kingdom which was represented by the golden head of this great historical image such was babylon with nebuchadnezzar in the prime of life bold vigorous and accomplished seated upon its throne when daniel entered within its walls to serve as a captive in its gorgeous palaces for seventy years there the children of the lord oppressed more than cheered by the glory and prosperity of the land of their captivity hung their harps on the willows of the euphrates and wept when they remembered zion there began the captive state of the church in a still broader sense, for ever since that time, the people of God had have been in subjugation to earthly powers and more or less oppressed by them.
So they will be unto all earthly powers, shall finally yield to him whose right it is to reign. And lo, that day of deliverance draws on apace into another city, not only Daniel, but all the children of God, from least to greatest, from lowest to highest, are soon to enter. And a city not merely sixty miles in circumference, but fifteen hundred miles, a city whose walls are not brick and butamen, but precious stones and jasper, whose streets are not the stone-paved streets of Babylon, smooth and beautiful as they were, but transparent gold, whose rivers is not the Euphrates, but the river of life, whose music is not the sighs and laments of broken-hearted captives, but the thrilling paeans of victory over death and the grave, which ransomed multitudes shall rise." whose light is not the intermittent light of earth, but the unceasing and ineffable glory of God and the Lamb. To this city they shall come, not as captives entering a foreign land, but as exiles returning to their father's house, not as to a place where such a chilling words as bondage, servitude, and oppression shall weigh down their spirits, but to one where the sweet words, home, freedom, peace, purity, unutterable bliss, and unending life shall thrill their souls with delight for ever and ever. Yea, our mouths shall be filled with laughter, and our tongues with singing, when the Lord shall turn again the captivity of Zion. These are Psalms 126, verses 1 and 2, and Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 through 27. I'm going to stop there. We are stopping at verse 39. We are going to continue the chapter at a different time. So, I hope you guys are having a good day. I know this was a longer episode, which is why I'm cutting it already. I hope you guys are having a good day or will have a good day. And may the Lord be with you. And if you're about to go to sleep, then good night.